The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her new book, Downwind, A People's History of the Nuclear West, Sarah Elizabeth Fox highlights the personal cost of nuclear testing and uranium extraction in the American West through extensive interviews with downwinders, the Native American and non-Native residents of the Great Basin region affected by nuclear environmental contamination and nuclear testing fallout. These downwinders tell tales of communities ravaged by cancer epidemics, farmers and ranchers economically ruined by massive crop and animal deaths, and miners working in dangerous conditions without proper safety equipment so the government could surreptitiously study the effects of radiation on humans. In detail, Downwind brings to light stories and concerns of these groups whose voices have been silenced and marginalized for decades in the name of patriotism and national security. Many of these themes are resonating with us today, of course. We welcome in Sarah Elizabeth Fox. Thanks for coming in to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, I wonder if uh, we could kick things off having you read just the first page and then over the... uh, over the page a bit. This uh, gives one person's account. Absolutely. So I'm going to lead off with a quote um, from Claudia Peterson. I interviewed her exactly 10 years ago this month in uh, St. George. So this is a childhood memory of Claudia's. I was outside with my brother and I saw this big red ball come up over the horizon and I thought it was a flying saucer. So I ran to the house to tell my mother. By the time five-year-old Claudia returned to her swing set, a strangely colored cloud was all that remained of her flying saucer. Years later, she learned that the apparition she had seen in the sky was not a UFO, but the mushroom cloud of a nuclear explosion. Her childhood home in southern Utah was about 100 miles east of the Nevada test site, known today as the Nevada National Security Site, one of the most heavily utilized nuclear weapons testing areas in the world. From 1951 to 1992, regular nuclear explosions rattled the region, scattering untold quantities of radioactive isotopes into the air, soil, and water, permeating the food chain downwind of the test site. Many families in the region either kept livestock and gardens or bought meat, milk, and produce from their neighbors, unwittingly gathering radiological contamination in their backyards and placing it on their dinner tables. By the age of 35, Claudia Peterson had buried her six-year-old daughter, her sister, her father, and numerous neighbors and friends, all of whom had succumbed to diseases potentially caused by radiation exposure. And Claudia's story, of course, is is not unique, not even unusual. Not in Utah. Yeah. Uh, what, what was your goal in, in uh, collecting these stories? In collecting these stories... I, Initially, um, I was motivated when I first encountered the Downwinder stories. I read about them in the newspaper when I first moved to Logan to go to grad school back in 2004. And I couldn't, I didn't want to believe that they could possibly be true. It was so shocking and so disturbing. And so I started digging a little bit. And, you know, as a Washington resident, I thought, what could people in Utah be downwind of? I didn't realize nuclear testing had gone on in Nevada or that had gone on for so many years and, and in such a dramatic fashion. Um, you know, I was thinking of Hanford. Um, and so once I realized that nuclear testing had, in fact, gone on, and I started to encounter more of these stories as I started digging in the library here at Utah State, um, my initial goal was to find out um, how true they were. I knew there had to be some truth to them, but I wasn't sure how to prove it. You know, verifying a memory like Claudia's of seeing a mushroom cloud in your backyard, I figured there's probably no way I could prove which test she saw or how much radiation actually might have come through her neighborhood. And it, it seemed like this very slippery issue as a historian. 
But one thing was really clear to me, and that's that these stories were significant. They were they were important cultural material, and the people who were telling them were dying. Um, I looked at this amazing volume of oral histories that a journalist named Carol Gallagher did in the late 80s and early 90s with primarily Utah residents. And a lot of the people she interviewed, I started looking online and finding obituaries. And so my initial motivation was to try to record some of these stories uh, to preserve them. And several of the people I interviewed for the book uh, passed away Mm. uh, before they got a chance to see it. The people you talked to, what was their purpose in telling these stories? I think primarily it's bearing witness. Um, they, They experienced in their families and in their communities these incredible losses. And in their minds, and in the minds of a lot of scientists and scholars, those losses are directly connected to Cold War nuclear activities. And they haven't gotten, um, you know, there's been moments where this was covered in the press and talked about by politicians and journalists, but these stories really haven't been given their due. Um, And it's easy to read a history of the Cold War and not hear a single thing about the downwinders. Mm -hmm. The Nevada Nuclear Testing Museum in Las Vegas barely mentions them. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was there, there was only one mention of downwind populations. And um, I just think that telling these stories for the people who lived them is is this critical act of bearing witness and and keeping alive the memory of the people they lost and the injustice they believe Mm -hmm. that's taken place. I want to emphasize the stories in the program today. We have, have an hour to talk about the broader picture, and maybe you could select another story to tell us, and, and then I'll have you read something from your conclusion, which ties this into national security. Um, but uh, this is this is people bearing witness, right? And and uh, I, I think probably the impulse to uh, not have their story, their family, forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so should I read another story Yes, now? yes, would love that. Um, so I'll go ahead and pull a story from the section where I discuss the uranium mining, which was pretty extensive in southern Utah and in the Four Corners region. Um, and it's not often talked about in conjunction with the nuclear testing, but the uranium industry was really critical to supporting the nuclear weapons development industry. You needed that raw material to build the bombs. Um, so this is a, this quote that I'm going to read right here. Um, is from um, a couple of di- these are a couple of different miners um, on the Navajo reservation. The lack of facilities for the miners extended to even the most basic of workers' needs: clean drinking water. Having gone into the mines in 1955 after his military service, George Lapahi related, "We would get tired and thirsty. We would drink the water which was flowing down off the rocks in the mine. That was how we worked." Another miner, Phil Harrison, recalled that he worked almost five months in a mine with my father, and almost every day I drank that water. He described how the workers constructed a homemade cistern in the mine with a small cup resting on its edge. So when you're working, you go over there, you get like three cups, and you go back to work, going to a water fountain. And, of course, the water that was flowing down off the rocks in the mine was contaminated with radioactivity. And because so much of the nuclear activity was taking place in arid regions of the American West where there wasn't a lot of water available, that water was being collected by a lot of the miners and taken home for their families. Um, Phil Harrison described how on weekends they used to pour the mine water in canvas bags and take it home. Some of that water was used in the coffee. He remembered hearing many stories about babies dying. We lost my little brother when he was six months old using mine water in baby formula. They were mixing it and feeding the babies. My brother died at about six months old from a stomach uh, from a stomach ailment. The tragedy Harrison described is played out in many communities where formula has replaced breastfeeding as a primary source of infant nutrition. Without access to clean water, formula becomes a def- delivery mechanism for toxins borne by contaminated local water supplies. Hmm. And uh, this is something I've learned from your book. 
I wonder if you'd expand on this. Um, Miners working in dangerous conditions without proper safety equipment so that the government could surreptitiously study the effects of radiation on humans. There was some purposefulness, purposeful neglect I don't know by the that government? Or there what? were definitely recommendations being made by the Public Health Service that safety equipment should be recommended or provided. Um, What's interesting about the uranium industry is that the Atomic Energy Commission had a tremendous amount of oversight. They were the only authorized purchaser of uranium. You couldn't sell uranium to anyone else. They had incentivized the development of the uranium industry in the American Southwest hugely. There were huge finding bonuses. and um, But the primary goal was getting the uranium out of the ground. And early on, you know, as, as early as the late 40s and early 50s, scientists were raising alarms that radon in particular was present in the mines in levels that would cause cancer. And there were lots of other types of contamination occurring, you know, when the uranium was being milled, when the uranium was being transported. Contamination was, was actively being spread around the areas that were hosting the uranium industry. And so the Public Health Service and the AEC decided they should study it, and they start studying it in the early 50s. And right away, they're finding evidence that quite a few of these miners and these millers and the people who are probably living near the camps um, are going to start to get sick. But no warning was given to the miners because of a concern that they would lose a workforce at a time when that uranium was critical to national security. Mm -hmm. So even like paper face masks or you know, steel-toed work boots, things that you would expect would be present in a mine, weren't being provided or recommended. Um, warnings, the, the first evidence that I could find of any warning being given to those miners was in the late 50s, mm -hmm. after, after, you know, this 1952 report from the Public Health Service had already detailed all the ways they were beginning to get sick. And none of them were, were informed that they were participating in a medical study. They were just told, you know, we'll let you know if there's anything mm -hmm. you need to worry about. You can see the reasoning, and, and of, of course it's... It's wrong, <laughs> but you, you see the reasoning in the context of national security. Absolutely, I mean it was a it was a frightening time, and and the imperative of staying ahead in the Cold War arms race. You know, the the Soviet Union had built their first successful nuclear weapon in the late '40s, and in the early '50s, as nuclear testing is really ramping up in Nevada, and the uranium industry is just booming in the Colorado Plateau. Um, national security is a huge concern. You know, I looked at old newspapers from Utah during that period of time, and there's headlines every day about, you know, the Soviet atomic stockpile advancing and Cold War spies, and it was a frightening time. And so um, it is understandable, and we've seen it in recent years, how national security concerns can sometimes um, take precedence over um, maybe the dissenting opinions of, of citizens who have concerns about the way national security measures are being enacted. Um, but it had pretty dramatic consequences for the health of people in the downwind and uranium-producing regions that that information wasn't shared at the time. If you just joined us, we're talking with Sarah Elizabeth Fox. Her new book is Downwind, A People's History of the Nuclear West, based on many, many interviews. And, uh, and then you correlated those interviews with uh, studies, or epidemi epidemiological studies, and so there's, there's some advancement here. And of course, the stories themselves are very valuable. I wonder if you could read the first paragraph in your conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Talk a little bit uh, further about uh, national security, and, and uh, of course, these issues resonate with us uh, today. With particular details and personal anguish, downwinder and uranium-affected storytellers have testified to the ravages of the nuclear era since its inception in World War II. Their testimony about the costs of the Cold War, era, Cold War era radiation exposure, excuse me, brings home the truth that all wars, no matter how conceptual they may seem, occur in actual places where actual people live, grow food, and raise children. They remind us that national security is more costly and more complicated than we have been led to believe, 
And no matter their politics, many who hear these stories find their understanding of American history unalterably changed. Mm. And uh, uh, that uh, particular passage resonated with me. All wars affect people in, in particular places. We tend to think of the Cold War as being fought by, you know, you, you got the red phone and you got diplomacy and, and you've got tense relations and uh, thank heaven we never had an actual you know nuclear war. Mm-hmm. But we think about it as out there. We think about it as out there. And in fact, you know, nuclear bombs were going off all the time. In my head, it was, you know, that first test in New Mexico, the Trinity test in 1945. And then, of course, the bombing of Japan. But in my mind, then it became a Cold War where there were no more explosions. And in fact, you know, they're going off every week sometimes out, you know, uh, just west of Utah. And that was that really shifted my understanding of of kind of the mechanics of modern warfare. You know, we may not be actively engaged in battles in some cases, but um, the writer Rebecca Solnit calls it making war by proxy, by display and displacement. Um, and, and that's very much what was going on at the Nevada mm-hmm. test site. So it's a cruel irony, isn't it, that uh, citizens of the West, U.S. citizens, were perhaps the biggest, some of the biggest Absolutely. victims here. Absolutely. And and the stories that I found, what's interesting is my research has gone on, the stories I was finding in the American West, there's duplicates of those stories in the Soviet Union, in, you know, in modern day Kazakhstan, um, in the Marshall Islands, in Australia, where Great Britain was right. testing, and, and in the uranium producing regions in Africa, um, in Canada. And the stories are just eerily similar to the stories that are being told right here in Utah. What about the government response? Is there, I, I, I could imagine a similar theme of not acknowledging yeah. A long, slow process to get the government to acknowledge. Yeah, and then and then not a tremendous amount of accountability or action from mm-hmm. the government. And in a lot of cases, people are just asking for basic health care, basic information that they can use to kind of better understand what they may or may not have been exposed to. I, I talked to a lot of people in Utah who didn't necessarily fault the government for its mistakes. Mm-hmm. They just wanted information. They wanted a little bit of accountability. They wanted an apology. Mm-hmm. And and even though there's been compensation legislation passed that does affect, um, you know, some areas where this where this contamination went on, it it's doesn't even come close, you know, to addressing the scope of this. And it, it really doesn't count as a formal apology, mm-hmm. which I think is what a lot of people would like. And you see this on many issues. What people really want is a formal apology from the government, and, and yet governments are very loath to apologize. Well, and it, it, it involves admitting mistakes were made in the context of an industry that still exists today. Um, you know, weapons development, uranium, the uranium industry, there's a lot of experts in those areas who would like us to believe that these things can now be done safely, mm-hmm. that we've learned from our mistakes, that we can now get uranium out of the ground cleanly, that we can now test weapons. I'm sure you remember the divine strike test that was proposed. Mm-hmm. Um, it was going to happen at the Nevada test site back when I was going to grad school here. Um, and it was effectively shut down by citizen storytellers, um, you know, taking to taking to the news, writing letters to their congressmen saying, you know, even if this is it wasn't going to be a nuclear blast, but it was going to take place in an area where so many nuclear weapons had been tested. But the government kept saying, we can do this safely. We mm. can do this safely. We've learned from our mistakes. And I think that kind of is a little bit hard to swallow for people, uh, particularly here in Utah, who've heard this message so many times before. And without that admission of responsibility, without some real um, close examination of of the data that the, you know we already have, 
um, I think people are a little reluctant to accept these promises that oh, we can store depleted uranium in Utah. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. We can um, store nuclear waste you know, over at Yucca Mountain. It'll be fine. We're just mm-hmm. going to truck it through Utah. Don't worry too much. People are having a hard time, I think, accepting that logic. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Sarah Elizabeth Fox, we'll uh, quote uh, Governor Scott Matheson whose family was affected by this. And in fact, he died of cancer with the suspicion is from from exposure to uh, nuclear radiation. Uh, We'll talk about uh, more storytellers. Sarah Elizabeth Fox calls them storytellers. We'll ask why. And more, of course, following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. I recently heard... So I've got a question for you guys. Why do you volunteer at Utah Public Radio? Well, it's because I support quality programming. I like to volunteer to support the local NPR member station. You get to watch the people do what they do, make radio magic. That sounds awesome. I want to volunteer. How do I sign up? The pledge drive is September 10th to the 16th. Just go to upr.org. That's upr.org. And look for the blue box to sign up for your time slot. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. A business leader who built a company came to me complaining, I can't solve all the problems. I just don't have the time. My response was, why are you solving problems? A leader should be a problem clarifier and coach those who stand face to face with problems. But good leaders don't solve problems. They help others avoid, prioritize, and yes, sometimes solve problems. It is a real challenge for most of us to let go of the things that we were good at earlier in our careers and move from becoming a problem solver to a problem clarifier. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. I'm Fred Child. Join me in the great outdoors for a musical celebration of the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. We'll spend a full hour making music inside Grand Teton National Park, and we'll think about connections between music and nature. On the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Sarah Elizabeth Fox, who's out with an important new book called Downwind, A People's History of the Nuclear West. And uh, this is based on many, many interviews with downwinders um, and uh, looking at the epidemiological studies. I can't say that word. And uh, matching things up, looking at the latest uh, science. Uh, this, of course, we've, uh, we've heard about for quite a while here in the West, uh, but the, uh, the story continues. And this gets us into national security and trust in government as well. We'll talk about that as well. Also, Sarah Elizabeth Fox is uh, telling us that the... Uh, the footprint, so to speak, of the, of the downwind uh, radiation is larger than we might think. There, there's an event, Sarah Elizabeth Fox, in Emmett, Idaho. 
tell, tell us why the interest in Emmett. Well, um, I didn't realize when I was in the thick of my research, um, particularly early on when I was, was doing my master's thesis research here at Utah State, that the contamination had extended beyond southern Utah. I looked at, you know, fallout deposition maps that were created with Atomic Energy Commission data, and you could see very heavy fallout deposition around southern Utah, which made sense. You know, it was immediately downwind of the test site. But um, the more digging I did, um, I encountered this study from the National Cancer Institute um, that looked at specifically thyroid cancer and abnormality. It was published in 1997. And there's a map in that study, and you can actually go online, look up National Cancer Institute, fallout thyroid cancer study, I think is usually the easiest way to Google it. And there's a map that shows the deposition of this particular radioisotope, iodine-131. And there's the red areas on the map are going to be the areas that were heavily um, impacted by this particular radioisotope, which was, of course, being carried on air currents after atmospheric nuclear tests that happened in the 50s. And the entire American West east of the test site was red. Mm. And that was shocking to me. Um, you know, it was easy to understand how a small area could have been really badly contaminated. But to see that that contamination had extended all the way across the country um, and what they found as they studied, you know, the AEC was monitoring where it was drifting down. You know, each test had its own radioactive signature thumbprint, you could call it. They were finding radiation all over the country. And Emmett, Idaho, Gem County, Idaho, ended up being one of the top five most heavily impacted counties in the country from this particular radioisotope. And iodine-131 has a pretty short half-life, only eight days. Um, but it's incredibly dangerous to the thyroid because, of course, the thyroid wants iodine. And so it draws that, that contamination in um, to the thyroid. And in the 1950s, um, what was everybody drinking two or three glasses of a day? Fresh milk. Fresh milk ended up being a huge delivery mechanism for this particular radioisotope. It would land on crops, you know, grazing land, alfalfa. Farmers would harvest that alfalfa and feed it to cattle. And the concentration of the iodine would magnify as it went up the food chain. So by the time it got to a kid in, you know, northern Utah or southern Idaho drinking a glass of milk in the 50s, there was a tremendous amount of radiation that was then passing behind the thyroid. And um, so Emmett, Emmett, Idaho, was very heavily impacted and in a lot of ways um, has even denser um, illness patterns. And people there are just starting to kind of figure that out in the last 10 years because they couldn't see the mushroom clouds like people could in southern Utah. Um, so they didn't – you couldn't see the radiation. You couldn't smell it or taste it. Um, but it was thoroughly permeating um, agriculture, and it was getting to people through the food they were eating and mm -hmm. feeding their children. So the, the just coming to light, I hadn't. I I had thought it was just Southern Utah. So if, uh, if you have a pattern of cancers in your family, and you're anywhere, I guess anywhere in the West, <laughs> right? Um, or you know, you, you look up these maps. What what kinds of cancers? Um, should, should you look for? What? There are scientists who say that there's not many kinds of cancer that can't be caused by radiation, but um, the ones that are covered by the Radiation Exposure Compensation Program, which was passed in the early 90s, are kind of a good indicator. Thyroid cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, stomach cancer. Um, there's a lot of other problems, though, besides cancer. There's autoimmune disorders. Lupus um, is very commonly linked to radiation exposure. Um, a lot of radiation exposure health ailments are very hard to distinguish as such, and particularly in the 50s. Um, doctors didn't know a lot about leukemia in this area, um, particularly in areas that are, are heavily um, Latter-day Saint populations. You know, people aren't smoking. They're not drinking alcohol. They're living very healthy lifestyles, and they're keeping very extensive genealogical records, and they hadn't seen these kinds of diseases before. There's anecdotes from 
undertakers in southern Utah, one in particular, he had no idea how to preserve the bodies because he'd never seen anything like this before. So it was really um, an aberration in this area to suddenly have all these different types of diseases. And, and there were lots of things that nobody at the time could really, you know, sudden heart failure of an otherwise healthy young farmer working out in his fields because he'd um, experienced, you know, massive radiation exposure, skin problems and rashes and um, premature aging is another big indicator of radiation exposure. But at the time, you know, people couldn't necessarily put that together because they didn't have that information. Hmm. Uh, so what to do if, you know, if a person's learning, hey, I some of the illnesses in my family could be caused by radiation. Just learning this, where, where to go? What, to? what I usually, well, it's a tough thing to wrap your brain around. Cancer and, and illness in your family is a hard enough thing to reckon with mm-hmm. if there's no apparent cause for it. But to start to sense that maybe there's a pattern is very disturbing. Um, what I usually suggest people do is go first to that National Cancer Institute study and just look at the areas that were heavily impacted. They have a map, and they actually have a calculator there. And if you were alive in the 1950s, anywhere in the United States, you can enter the county you grew up in and estimate the amount of milk you drink. Now, this is just specific to iodine-131, but it's a useful exercise, I think, in terms of finding out if you may have actually grown up in an area that was heavily impacted. Um, and it will estimate the amount of iodine-131 exposure you received as a child in the 50s. So I, I usually direct people to that first. And um, then there's you know there's lots of good research. Google would have been an amazing tool for the right. downwinders in the 70s yeah. to have um, you know, when they're dealing with these very rare disease diagnoses and trying to get a sense of whether or not there's a pattern. You know, there's a tremendous amount of data accessible online now. Mm-hmm. And so I would... I would definitely urge people to start with that 1997 NCI study, which is published in its entirety online. Okay. That brings up a point. You're, you're contactable, I think, and you you could record someone's history if they uh, their story. Yeah, if, if absolutely. How do I people think, contact you? Well, if people want to contact me, the best way to do it is at downwindhistory at gmail.com. Um, just drop me an email and let me know that you're interested. I can take written testimony um, you know, over email. Otherwise, if they're not able to connect with me, um, the University of Utah has actually started a Downwinders of Utah archive. And they have, if you just Google University of Utah Downwinders archive, they have this amazing website with all of this great data. There's downloadable material for teachers to use in classrooms. There's an interactive timeline. And most importantly, there's a place people can click on oral histories where you can fill out a form and then record your oral history, your story of living downwind over just over your computer, you know, which is great, especially for senior citizens and folks who maybe have a hard time getting somewhere to be interviewed. And then that way your story will be preserved and recorded in the University of Utah Downwinder archive. Excellent. What if you'd uh, read us another story? Yeah, so this is this story um, actually comes from former Utah Governor Scott Matheson, okay. um, who identified himself as a downwinder. And he played a really important role in bringing this story to light in the late 1970s. You know, there's people in, especially in southern Utah, who've been pushing to get these stories examined for years. Irma Thomas, who I'll, I'll talk about also, is a big, a big voice for downwinders of southern Utah. Um, and in the mid to late 70s, that starts to kind of finally... Um, get some traction with with elected leaders. And Scott Matheson had memories of seeing nuclear tests when he was a young man in southern Utah. And so he appointed a commission, as in his capacity as governor, to start looking at some of the documents which were you know, being declassified from the Atomic Energy Commission, which kept pretty meticulous records throughout the 50s and 60s. And he gathered all of this data and started making it public. And there were congressional hearings that were held in Utah in 1979. 
um, as a result of that. But so Scott Matheson begins to push for a full review of previously classified Atomic Energy Commission documents from the 1950s, and he appoints this inquiry commission to pour over the documents. And his personal story, of course, informed his gubernatorial actions. As a Southern Utah resident hailing from Cedar City in Parowan, he witnessed brilliant flashes and thunder-like blasts from nuclear tests in the early 50s, and many in his family struggled with health problems afterwards. Matheson found the stories of other downwind residents compelling and convincing, and he became one of the most powerful advocates, speaking and acting forcefully on behalf of downwind Utahns throughout his two terms as governor. In the mid-1980s, Matheson was diagnosed with terminal multiple myeloma, which he connected directly to his radiation exposure from the Nevada test site. In 1986, four years before he succumbed to his disease, Matheson stated that the downwinder stories, quote, pointed to a continuing need for governors to be vigilant concerning both short-term and long-term impacts of federal decisions for their residents. If citizens in a state are to be sacrificed for the national interest, then at the very least, those citizens need to be fully informed and protected as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So he's acknowledging the government's rationale here for keeping this secret, but he's he's calling for um, for full disclosure, or at least yeah. partial disclosure, some disclosure. Uh, but I guess the government at the time would have said, or at least earlier, would have said, you know, if we talk about this, then maybe there's going to be pressure to shut this down, or you know, it's going to harm national security. That was exactly their rationale. And interestingly, Matheson's sentiment, you know, of, of recognizing the national security imperative is echoed in so many of the downwinder stories that I looked at. Um, people didn't, f- you know, they, they understood that this weapons program was important. They believed that it was important. And many of them said, you know, we would have had no problem with it. We would have just liked to get our kids out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thinking in the Atomic Energy Commission, and I was able to look at documents where this was explicitly stated, was that the public harbored an unjustifiable and irrational fear of atomic weaponry. Mm-hmm. And that if news got out about potential health problems or contamination of food supply from testing in Nevada, that there would be a panic and that the public would insist that this weapons development program be shut down. And of course, this weapons development program is incredibly expensive. And um, so if the public had you know, gotten any more information probably about what was going on, um, there, there would have potentially been a lot of resistance. And that, that reasoning comes up multiple times when a University of Utah scientist named Robert Pendleton discovered that milk was being contaminated um, in the early 1960s. He tried to alert the Public Health Service, the Atomic Energy Commission, and they said, we can't alert the public because they might do something rash, like stop drinking milk and depress their calcium intake, and that would be hard for them to live with later. Mm. So that was the rationale they gave him. Of course, the, the underpinning logic, though, was we want to avoid a panic that might call, you know, end up causing citizens to reject testing in Nevada. Yeah. And, of course, we hear that line now, and it seems on the face of it pretty lame, you know, it pretty does. pretty thin. But, of course, you have to remember there was more trust in the government. Absolutely. In the 1950s, then. there was a tremendous amount of trust for the government. People were deeply patriotic. They were deeply concerned about the possibility of our enemies acquiring this very destructive weapon. And, and there was a willingness to put a lot of faith in the government to look out for our best interests. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a it was a tremendous amount of patriotism that then when people began to realize that maybe the government hadn't had their specific best interests at heart, um, that was a huge sense of betrayal. And that's a huge theme in these stories mm-hmm. um, is this sense of betrayed patriotism and betrayed trust in government, which I think is as much of a legacy 
of this, these events and this period in history as the health problems, that there are folks across this region who will never again take the government's word at face mm-hmm. value because right. they were so solidly de- betrayed in their minds. Uh, I want to just read this this a bit of a paragraph here from page 126 before we go to break, and then it will t- continue to talk about government trust, and, uh, and here's some more stories. But you write, in the 1950s, living downwind of a government nuclear facility or a uranium site did not automatically cause alarm. The Federal Civil Defense Administration, FCDA, materials regularly reminded citizens, quote, radioactivity is nothing new. The whole world is radioactive, end quote. The risk came, authorities suggested, quote, if you are exposed to it long enough, and then in all caps, it will hurt you, exclamation point. It may even kill you, exclamation point. And then you go on to talk about in case of nuclear attack, uh, there's a there's a you know a brochure facts about the fallout, and we you know we remember fallout shelters. I remember in elementary school we did nuclear uh, testing drills. We got under our desk. I don't Duck know what that cover. was gonna. I don't know what that was, that was gonna do under my desk. Wouldn't but, have done a whole lot. Um, but uh, this indicates the sort of the confused message, which maybe indicates confusion of the government about what do we do about this. There was a lot of confusion in the 1950s because the size of the bombs at that point had become so dramatically large that the Atomic Energy Commission and, and, you know, the FCDA realized that fallout shelters weren't going to do a darn thing. Um, And the problem of how do you house the entire population of the United States in a fallout shelter, building public fallout shelters was seen as being communist, which was something we were really trying to avoid in the 1950s. So there were deliberate decisions made um, not to build public fallout shelters. You know, there are some universities usually serve. They had the fallout shelter signs. You, You can still see them. When I was here as a grad student, I could still find the signs in Logan. Um, but the people were urged to build their own personal uh, nuclear, quote unquote, nuclear family fallout shelters in their backyards because that way they could help participate in doing the work of national security. But even when, as people are being urged to build these fallout shelters, people in southern Utah are building fallout shelters. And the irony was starting to kind of catch on. You know, we're supposed to use these in case the Russians attack, but our own government is setting up bombs right over the way, you know, every other week. And that's that's apparently safe. So that must be a different kind of nuclear explosion. Um, So people did kind of start to figure out that there was some inconsistency there. Let's take a break. Uh, We'll have more with Sarah Elizabeth Fox on her book, Downwind, A People's History of the Nuclear West, following this break. San Francisco Opera presents Gaetano Donizetti's thrilling tragedy, Lucia di Lammermoor. Music director Nicola Luisotti leads a vibrant cast featuring Piotr Bacciawa, Brian Mulligan, and Nadine Sierra with a stirring performance in the title role. Join us for Lucia di Lammermoor on this station. Join us Sunday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio. This is Terry Guy, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. UPR is a statewide public radio station serving the citizens of Utah since 1953. Our listeners are educated, socially conscious, and enjoy arts and culture. They are your loyal patrons. If you're looking to make a smart business decision, become a UPR sponsor. For more information, call 435-797-3141. Jeremy Hobson, the Affordable Care Act may be facing its biggest setback yet. Tennessee's insurance regulator has approved huge premium increases and declares the state's health exchanges are very near collapse. 
Insurers are pulling out of exchanges in other states, too. Can Obamacare survive all this? That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're talking with Sarah Elizabeth Fox. She has a new uh, book out, a very important book called Downwind, A People's History of the Nuclear West. So you call, Sarah Elizabeth Fox, you call these, these people storytellers, which I guess could have a negative connotation of, you know, telling a fib or telling something that's not true. You're, uh, you're using this, I think, in the sense of people bearing witness. Yeah, in the folklore, the folklore sense of the word. And um, when I first encountered these stories, I thought, wow, they do sound like folktales. Then I started to deepen my study of folklore here at Utah State, and I discovered that folklore um, isn't necessarily untrue, that personal narratives, stories that people relate about their own experiences, are a form of folklore um, because they're oral narratives predominantly. They're being shared as stories you know, with people's families and community members. And as people started to figure out that there was some sort of connection possibly between the health problems that were happening and the uranium, you know, the uranium industry and the testing, um, in order to make sense of these kind of disparate you know, pieces of information, they started knitting them together into narratives, into stories. And part of the reason why these citizen storytellers were so effective is because when they shared their feelings, their their suspicions that people were getting sick in their community because of radiation exposure um, from nuclear activities, they were more um, credible to their neighbors, to their families than, mm-hmm. say, you know, we think of anti-nuclear activists in the, in the 70s and they're kind of long-haired hippies from the coast, I think is what comes to mind for most people. But when your neighbor or someone else on the PTA or a fellow that you work with shares a story with you about something that's been happening in his family and kind of ties in his understanding in that story form of how that contamination might have gotten to his family. Well, we drank a lot of local milk and, you know, I remember the clouds coming down where the cattle were grazing. I wonder if that could have been the connection. Um, those stories had, I think, a lot more of an impact on the people who heard them than maybe, you know, today we read expose and exposés and shocking revelations in the newspaper all the time. And, you know, you, it maybe like sticks in the back of your mind, but you move on to the next thing. But when you hear a story from someone you trust or someone you know or someone you care about or someone who shares a tie to a place um, like you do, it, it tends to have a much deeper emotional impact on you. And that was definitely what began to happen as these early you know, self-recognized, self-proclaimed downwinders started narrating their sense of what was going on. Hmm. And you have a chapter called Critical Mass. It, it became time, I guess, in the late 70s where uh, enough people were willing to believe their neighbor. Mm-hmm. Because people have been telling these stories, I assume, since the 1950s. Since the or, beginning, since yeah. the inception of testing in Nevada. But finally, by the by the late 70s, and, and uh, you, you write about... Uh, a lady called uh, Irma, Irma Thomas. Tell us about Irma Thomas. Irma Thomas was a mother in southern Utah um, who 
very early on, um, the way she described it in interviews and the way her, I interviewed her daughter, Michelle, very early on started to have concerns about the safety of what was going on over in Nevada. And her daughter remembered seeing her, um, you know, she'd be hanging up the family laundry and a test would go off and the, the, this dust would start to drift down on the laundry. And Irma Thomas used to take her laundry back down off the line and rewash it. And, you know, to a neighbor looking over the fence, that might look kind of crazy, especially if the government is routinely telling you, and it was in the 1950s, it's perfectly safe. You have nothing to worry about. Kids were bringing home pamphlets from school, and Irma Thomas certainly read those pamphlets from the Atomic Energy Commission that said, you know, all safety measures are in place. You know, we only do the tests and under the right environmental conditions, which was unfortunately code for when the wind is blowing east away from Vegas and California and over Utah, unfortunately. Um, because they knew that people were going to get sick, and they didn't want too many people to get sick. Um, so Irma Thomas was starting to kind of think critically about that early on in the 50s. And her daughter says that initially she kind of kept her mouth shut. You know, she didn't want to appear unpatriotic. And, you know, of course, if the government's telling you it's safe, you know, who are you to question? Um, but people started getting sick, and women started having miscarriages. And uh, Irma Thomas's best friend who lived across the street died of cancer. And her daughter says that just radicalized her. And she couldn't anymore ignore the fact that she saw a connection there. So she started asking for more information. She started writing letters to elected officials. She started you – know, the Atomic Energy Commission had um, – representatives stationed in a lot of the little towns across Utah and the other downwind areas. And, you know, they used to run newspaper advertisements. If you have any questions, go visit your AEC representative in St. George. He stayed at the Rugged West Motel downtown. Um, but the information that people like Irma were getting back was very much, you know, kind of the runaround. And Irma Thomas was a smart lady, and she knew she was getting the runaround. She kept pushing. She kept pushing. She started talking to other women and saying, have you noticed problems? Um, I interviewed Loa Johnson, and Loa remembered Irma coming to visit her and saying, have you noticed? Uh, Loa was Irma's kid's piano teacher. And she said, have you noticed a problem? And Irma's daughter had died of leukemia. And, or excuse me, uh, Loa's daughter had died of leukemia. And at the time, it was just a tragedy. But once Irma started kind of pushing her to think a little bit more broadly about it, she started keeping a list of names. And suddenly, she saw this huge pattern around her. And so people like Irma were really kind of on the vanguard of kind of sparking awareness of this in their communities. And she eventually got some declassified documents. Somebody sent them to her secretly. Um, you know, her family never knew who it was that sent the documents. And it referenced, there was a map that referenced St. George's fallout city. And of course, it just invigorated her activities more. Um, she was able to pull together um, Stuart Udall, who used to be the Secretary of the Interior, um, got interested in this issue at this about this time, and he suggested she form a committee of survivors. And so she gets together this group of women um, in communities around southern Utah and northern Arizona, and they start making lists of names. And eventually, those lists of names begin the beginning became the beginning of a lawsuit against the government. Mm. And, and it took a while. It took a while. It, uh, you know, you, you have a. Uh an art, uh, I think it's a headline to a um, editorial from Deseret News. Deseret News is known as you know fairly conservative paper, but uh, they're saying, uh, "Hey, if if we can't trust the government on this, are there other things that we can't trust the government about?" What else are they sweeping under the rug? I yeah. believe was the language yeah. in that article. And of course, the 1970s were a time when there were a lot of revelations happening about government dishonesty. Um, you know, we were still in the thick of the Cold War, but 
information about possible duplicity around Vietnam uh, was starting to come to light. The Watergate scandal happens. Um, and these stories from downwind are starting to make it further and further out of their local communities and into the public lexicon. A big way that happened was a group of veterans, uh, military veterans, started applying for uh, their benefits, their health benefits, because they were starting to get sick with cancers like leukemia in the 70s, in the mid-70s. And these guys had been stationed at the Nevada test site in the 50s. And the thinking was if nuclear weapons were going to be a new part of our arsenal, we needed to train soldiers to um, become accustomed to their use in wartime. And so these guys would crouch in trenches in Nevada. The cloud would go up. They talked about putting their hands over their faces and seeing the bones in their hands. They talked about, you know, vomiting and having nosebleeds, getting thrown around by the explosion. And then they would march towards the site of the blast. Um, the idea was to condition them to the use of nuclear weapons and warfare. But, of course, these guys are receiving incredibly heavy doses of radiation. They were told not to talk about what they participated in for reasons of national security. But in the 70s, when they start getting sick and then saying, you haven't done anything in the military that would cause you to get leukemia. And they're, they're saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, we did. I just want you know some benefits for my family when I'm gone. And those guys really seized the public the public's attention, and they became known as the Atomic Vets. And pretty soon, you have national headlines as opposed to just local headlines um, about the impact of this. And that, of course, that national attention kind of motivates elected officials to start like, taking a closer mm-hmm. look and commissioning studies, holding hearings, et cetera. And this uh, this lack of trust in government, I guess uh, there's positives and negatives. Uh, positive, one positive I could think of, if you're against the Yucca Mountain site, this building distrust in government uh, probably aided in skepticism and, and helped to defeat that site. I think that, uh, yeah, a healthy degree of skepticism is really important. And I think that asking for citizens to ask critical questions of their government is critical to keep that government honest and accountable mm-hmm. um, to its people, which is ultimately its job. And, you know, we've got to find a place to we've got to find a solution for our nuclear waste. There's no question about that. But um, the American West has been treated as a dumping ground in more ways than one. And it's been a region that's been really undervalued by decision makers in the East in so many ways, which is part of how nuclear testing came to be cited in Nevada in the first place. And so I think that the willingness of people in this region to remember what has gone on, to tell stories about it and to kind of preserve that that element of skepticism, you know, we would like to see the data mm-hmm. on how you plan to do this safely. I think it's really critical for the health of the region, the health of the citizens, and, and ultimately for the health of the democracy. Mm-hmm. What about just have about a minute left? I wonder with the talking to so many people about this, they've told their story, bore witness. You found that, that I think Irma Thomas found that uh, a lot of people had a list in their in their, their pocket. purse or pocket, they they were wanting to bear witness all along. What what have you in the end here? The, the book's out now. What have you? What's the biggest thing you've come away with? The biggest thing I've come away with um, is a sense of admiration and respect for the tenacity of the people who've kept these stories alive. I think it's really easy to look at the scope of this, and I certainly was initially, just be knocked over by the scope of the tragedy. And there were certainly plenty of times where I left interviews and just sat in my car and cried. Um, but ultimately, what I keep coming back to over and over again is the ability of citizens to take stock of what's going on in their communities, to take stock of what's going on in their families, to have a sense of, you know, where their food is coming from and what might be getting into their food and to ask questions about that, that tenacity, that willingness to kind of put it all together and bear witness is, I think, really inspiring. And I think it offers the rest of us a blueprint for how we can move forward in this technological and often really, you know, overwhelming time when there's risks, you know, 
theoretically coming at us from every direction. We can ask good questions. We can we can keep track of what's going on in our family and in our community. And, and we have the innate um, wisdom to make sense and ask good questions of these things, even if they're beyond our ability to you know fully analyze. And uh, we're out of time here, but I just mentioned that eternal vigilance, I guess, is necessary. Uh, there's always pressure and current pressure to, uh, to ramp uranium mining back up, uh, for, for one example. Uh, Sarah Elizabeth Fox has been my guest. Very interesting discussion. The book is very well worth a read, Downwind, A People's History of the Nuclear West. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. Thanks for listening to this encore presentation of Access Utah. We go now to a UPR original series. Roots of Brazil has been exploring the culture of Brazil in the colonial city of Salvador throughout the month of August. All past episodes can be found on upr.org. In this next installment, Utah State University student Mikel Law highlights three females whose diverse stories address some of the difficulties and complexities of the modern-day Brazilian woman. The identity of the modern Brazilian woman is ever-changing. This complex story of female empowerment is a transnational one, but one that is especially visible in Brazil and Latin America. Take for example, Brazil only recently elected their first female president, Dilma Rousseff. When elected in 2010, she proclaimed to the world, quote, I hope the fathers and mothers of little girls will look at them and say, yes, women can, unquote. That said, Jilma is undergoing impeachment hearings and has experienced a number of critiques because of her gender. Overall, the identity of the modern Brazilian woman is very complex. It's complicated further because of the intersectionality of gender with race, class, and sexuality. To get a more in-depth understanding of these issues, the Utah State University crew met with local novelist and artist Maria Prado to talk about her experience as an openly gay and female public figure. My concerns with gender issues are absolute. First, I am a woman, married to a woman. This issue makes it seem like we have had several advances in the Brazilian legal system. We can now formalize civil marriages because of laws. My marriage was formalized because of it, and other people are doing it as well. Despite these advances, being a woman married to a woman is still very difficult in Brazil. Prado spoke more about those women who she thinks have perhaps the toughest time in modern Brazilian society. Poor black lesbian women are absolutely overwhelmed with total discrimination. I can't think of a single black woman that is lesbian and famous, but a pop star singer in North America can be lesbian and very famous, and she will not suffer the same discrimination that a poor black woman living in the poor Harlem or ghetto faces. I think it is humiliating for humanity that we are still discussing this, but unfortunately, we have to discuss it. Because Brazil is the country with the largest black population outside all of Africa, gender and race are inexorably connected. We met with Manuele, who works in the tourist industry, dressed as an icon of Afro-Brazilian women called Baiana. Manuele gave us her take on some of the difficulties faced by Afro-Brazilian women. Black people do not want to marry people of their same color. Men want white women, but I know that love has no boundaries. I can fall in love with a white man, why not? But today, all the black men of the world want white women. It seems like they do not value their own race. This is bad. Being black is beautiful. 
While these issues are deeply seated in Brazilian culture and are sometimes slow to change, there are people and organizations who work every day to provide education and opportunities to improve the lives of women in Salvador and throughout Brazil. We spoke with Luciana, a former street kid turned social worker for Projeto Age, an organization featured in another episode of Roots of Brazil, to get her take on how to empower girls and women in Salvador. What I always tell my girls is this, you do not need a man for you to have your story. You will have to go through trials with the man that you choose. You will find out which man has the ability to deal with trials and which man is qualified to be at your side. That's what's important. I try to teach my girls, whether they are children, teenagers, or adults, is that they need to improve themselves throughout life so that they are empowered. From that empowerment, they are able to find the life they want and the freedom to choose what they want for their lives. This is Mikel Law reporting from Salvador, Brazil, with Elizabeth Thomas, Brianne Charlesworth, and Jason Gilmore, with translation help from Jairo Arias for Utah Public Radio. Roots of Brazil is made possible in part by our members and the USU Office of Global Engagement, providing services for international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities for students and faculty. Details at globalengagement.usu.edu. Nobody had heard of Zika two years ago. kind of came out of nowhere, except it really didn't. We know what wildlife carry these pathogens. We know where they are on the planet. We know who really is going to be the first to get infected. I'm Kai Rizdal, stopping outbreaks before they start. That is next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a new, more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.